G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. I believe this has been God's intention for us all along, that you and I would respond to the unfortunate events of our lives, the small ones when someone steps in front of us or the big ones when the doctor tells us we have a disease that is quite serious, when we enter into a season of deep depression or anxiety, when we lose our job, when we lose our control. The story of Gideon gives us that perspective change. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill, and welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. Today, we continue with Pastor Jeff's series called Unpossible, examining the life and faith of Gideon. In Judges 6 and 7, we can identify seven resolutions that can guide us in living full lives with a sense of joy and connection with God. Here's Pastor Jeff looking at how Gideon responds to God in some challenging situations. I'm in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. We continue our series called Unpossible. And let me just say from the get-go, you know, wherever you are right now, um, I want to encourage you to keep coming along this journey with us. It's probably one of the most important journeys we've ever taken concerning the relationship we have with God, how God sees our lives, the things He's trying to do in our lives, and the extraordinary life that is available for every Christ follower to live. Um, I've got a friend, let me just start with a a friend of mine, a very close friend, and he's going through a very difficult time right now. In fact, he's, uh, he's about my age, so... 35, no, just kidding. He's, uh, he's in his early 60s, and he not too long ago lost his job. Now, this is a guy who's been in the same job for many, many years, very well qualified. There's something definitely happened in our culture today where the older you get, the more experience you get, sometimes disqualifies you for a job because they know they're going to have to pay you more for your expertise. So a lot of companies go for younger, more inexperienced, but also uh, a less economic strain on the business or the company. So my friend is in this position where he's wondering, you know, how am I going to finish? Am I going to finish well? How am I going to live out the rest of my life? And there's a concern that, is God going to provide a job for me so that I can continue to feed my family, continue to do the things that I wanted to do in my older age? Now, what I've noticed, and I mentioned this last week, is I'm very, very good at giving him words of encouragement. Man, I'm quoting scripture. I'm talking about the sovereignty of God and how God looks down and sees everything and how he's omniscient. He knows everything that's coming. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can take it all, connect all the dots, and do amazing things in your life. I mean, in the words of Tony Campalo, sometimes I'm so good with my words, I take notes on myself. (laughs) So you're thinking, when somebody else is suffering, man, you're really good at saying what you've been taught. What I think what you actually believe. The problem happens when the same tragedy 
or a deep tragedy strikes our own lives, then suddenly, even though down deep inside, we still believe in the omnipotence, all-powerful God, the omniscience of God, all-knowingness of God. And the issue isn't so much that we don't trust God, it's more that we don't trust ourselves. We start asking questions like, well, since I'm in this predicament, I've obviously done something wrong to deserve this. So we start doing kind of a review of our lives over the last few months or years, and we're thinking, okay, what have I done to deserve this? In the book of Job, we learn sometimes the things that happen to us have very little to do with us and more to do with the glory of God. And that's something as Christ followers, we know that we are owned, we've been bought with a price and God has the sovereign right to do with us and to use us for his glory. But there's still a part of us that says, I can endure the what, no matter what it is, if I know the why. And the reason that so many preachers deal with the book of Job, even though we're in Judges, even though we deal with the book of Job, we do so because we know that his story in a very real way is our story. Because Job maintains his trust and faith and commitment in God, even though he has no idea what's happening or why it's come upon him. And his response as we read the book of Job ushers in this cosmic victory as if Job's response to his pain and suffering mattered, mattered in the larger scheme of things. Now, the point we've tried to make in this series is that you and I will never know what is coming and we will never know from where it's coming or how long it's gonna last. That's just the way life is. But just because we are limited in our knowledge of these things, that does not mean that there's nothing about which we can be certain. There are certainties, absolute certainties. For instance, nothing comes into our lives without God's foreknowledge. Nothing surprises God. God saw it coming, could have stopped it, could have prevented it, but has allowed it for some reason we may never know, at least not in the short term. Second, we're told, and we use this verse again and again to comfort each other, and we should, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that all things work together for the good of those who are for those who love God and called according to his purpose. And we talked about that Greek word synergism or synergeo, which is a word that means you can, you can take two things that in and of themselves are not beneficial, combine them, work them together, and bring about something beautiful. The example we used last week is table salt, which is composed of two poisons, sodium and chlorine, yet put them together and voila, you have something beneficial and inviting. And we're told that God works together, synergy or synergeo, all things, no matter what it is, even our own sin, he's able to take after repentance and work it together for something that is glorious. And then third, we know with certainty, and you'd have to be a little older to get this, but we are all like the Jeffersons in God's eyes. We're always moving on up. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite passages, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Now notice the Bible tells us that we see clearly now with unveiled faces, we see what God is doing in our lives and he is moving us through the circumstances of our lives from glory to glory to glory. We are climbing the glory ladder until we get to the top and are fully and completely conformed to the image of Christ. Now giving these truths, this whole series, and we're gonna do a review from time to time because we gotta keep this train rolling in the right direction. 
in this series, given these truths, we must begin to live in a different way from the rest of humanity when it comes to our response to the unfortunate events of our lives. We have to go against the grain, against the flow. And I'm hoping in this series that all of us can have that aha moment Remember what we said Stephen Covey stated in his book. He said, employees, this is the reason businesses started to succeed, employees realize they need not be controlled by eternal forces, or rather external forces, that should say, but instead could shape unfortunate events into individual and corporate wins by altering their response and perspective. I find that amazing that a business could recognize something that the Bible has taught for centuries. There's no need for you and I to be controlled by external circumstances. But if we learn to respond to the unfortunate events of our lives, we can actually turn them around. God turns them around, not as disadvantages, but advantages for the glory of God and for our ultimate success. That's when I had my aha moment. And I realized there's gotta be seven resolutions in the scripture. And if we make those seven resolutions, we don't have to be controlled by any external circumstance. I believe this has been God's intention for us all along, that you and I would respond to the unfortunate events of our lives, the small ones, when someone steps in front of us in line at coffee clatch, when somebody cuts us off on the 210, or the big ones when the doctor tells us we have a disease that is quite serious, when we enter into a season of deep depression or anxiety, when we lose our job, when we lose our relationship, when we lose our control. The story of Gideon gives us that perspective change. And we talked about last week how he's facing incredible odds, 135,000 against 32,000. Farmers against well-trained warriors. And they're in this position because of their rebellion But when God decides to deliver them, when he decides that he's going to create in Gideon a giant killer, he doesn't even mention the sin or the failure. He simply comes to Gideon and he says, I've chosen you to do something extraordinary. And I want to say to you that, my friends, is what God says to every single one of us. I see nowhere in scripture where God wants to save you and then leave you alone for you to go back to your old way of living. He wants to move us from glory to glory so that our life becomes a masterclass that God engages us so that we may live an extraordinary life. You know, I want to go back to one thing before I get to the resolution. That potter's wheel illustration that I've mentioned many times that astounds me because the potter's wheel seems to me to be painful. But when a potter has clay on the wheel and it's not forming or conforming to the desired shape or form, he will often take the clay and throw it down and slam it onto the ground and start all over. And sometimes, quite frankly, there have been periods in my life where I feel like the potter, I'm the clay, and God says, you know what? You're not conforming. You're not cooperating. I'm going to have to slam you down and start over. So we said that resolution number one is that I will see the unfortunate events of my life as faith builders leading to the greatest accomplishments of my life. I am saying that God deliberately causes, allows, even sovereignly ordains pain and suffering, even unfortunate circumstances into our lives to equip us, even force us to trust him. 
to pull the rug out from under us. So the only thing we can do is run to him. When we lose our job, when we're in financial disarray, when we've got a negative health report, in any situation where we see no recovery, God allows it to come into our lives in order that we may appeal to him, come to him and realize he's our only hope. And then as he delivers us from the situation, our faith and trust in him grows so that we can move up the next ladder on the glory train so that we can become everything God wants us to become. That's hard to take. And there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with that. But the reality is, if we're going to be trained for greatness, the first resolution we have to make and understand is that when unfortunate events come into our lives, God knew, God saw, God understands, and he's doing something majestic. And if we will trust him and him alone, he will deliver us. Now, here's resolution two. We say, I will confirm or affirm that God will often, now this is going to be even more difficult than the first one. I will affirm that God will often require me to do something that seems unreasonable. I will affirm that God will often require me, at least in my human wisdom, to do something that seems unreasonable. I'm in Judges chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or the hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now let's, let's stay together here. What's happening? God has built Gideon's faith in the supernatural by supernatural demonstrations. Gideon is now ready to advance to the next phase of his spiritual boot camp. That's what life basically is for us folks, a spiritual boot camp. Here's the situation from Gideon's vantage point. There's 135,000 well-trained Midianite warriors. They've set up camp near the hill of Moray. The Bible tells us the Israelites set up camp, or their tents rather, adjacent to the spring of Herod. Now, I, I want to show you on a map. If I were to take you to Israel today, I could show you how the hill of Moray sits just above, resides just above the spring of Herod. So that whatever's happening at the spring would be in full, full view of the Midianite camp. Now, as Gideon does the math, he's got 135,000 warriors. No, that's the Midianites. He has, Gideon that is, 32,000 farmers. So he approaches the spring with 32,000 farmers as the 135,000 Midianites look on. Now Gideon's coming to this first board meeting in Gideon or in Judges chapter 7, thinking that God is going to give him some special military strategy. He knows he's outnumbered significantly. At this point, he's four to one. And again, they're warriors versus farmers with picks and shovels. He goes to the meeting, imagine his consternation in verse 2 when God speaks to Gideon and says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Now, if you're Gideon, you're thinking, what is this? Is this some kind of new math? What do you mean we have too many men? We're significantly outnumbered. The odds as they presently stand are four to one. And if that's not bad enough, the Midianites are well, the Midianites are well experienced and we're just a bunch of farmers. 
Now, what's interesting again is God does not feel the need to explain. God sees exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And why he doesn't share that plan immediately with Gideon, we don't know. What we do know is that God's knowledge and understanding of this battle far exceeds our own. We're not omniscient. He is. We're unable to see what's coming. And even if we did, we really couldn't do much about it. Second, our knowledge is limited, not merely of what's coming, but what is happening all around us at the same time. We don't know what the enemy's thinking. We don't know their strategy. God does. We don't know what they plan to do. We don't know what move on the chessboard comes next. And we don't know what move on the chessboard will bring us ultimate victory. Simply put, there are simply too many moving parts, too many dots to be connected. God, on the other hand, would know every intricate detail about this situation. He controls all the moving parts. He knows exactly what we need to do to win the war and the battle. Given all the variables, he knows what we have to do to succeed in every endeavor. Therefore, and this is important, what may seem irrational and illogical to you because of your limited knowledge becomes actually the key to victory. So because God sees everything and knows how he intends to bring about this victory, he simply says to Gideon, Gideon, I know this isn't going to make much sense to you, but you have too many men. I'm going to have to sift the army if you're going to be victorious. And he says, Gideon, I'm going to give you two tests. Now, Gideon, I'm amazed there's no pushback here. He knows the odds are four to one. Gideon is already growing in his faith because of his relationship with God. There's no pushback. He admits his own limitation and he says, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Now, here's what God tells him to do. Let's see if we can understand this. God says, Gideon, I want you to take the men down to the spring of Herod. And remember, this will be right adjacent to the enemy camp. And I want you to give the men two tests. First of all, I want you to take these 32,000 men and I want you to ask them a simple question. I want you to shout to them, raise your hand if you're afraid to go into battle. And he says, if, if you are afraid to go into battle, God said, you count all those who raise their hand and you tell everyone who raises their hands to pack up their tent and their stuff and go home. Now you can imagine what Gideon was thinking. In precise words, in verse three, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now, if I were an Israelite, again, from a human perspective, I might take this opportunity to skedaddle. Skedaddle is a word we use back in East Tennessee quite often. It just simply means to depart quickly. I'm out of here. I would pick up my stuff and go home. We're outnumbered four to one. I'm a farmer. They're warriors. We're about to be slaughtered and annihilated. But then think about it. If you pick up your gear and go home, where are you going to go? You're just delaying the inevitable. The Midianites are coming down every year, have been for seven years, and impoverishing the land of Israel. So you might go home to your camp, but it's only a matter of time. You're going to die eventually. You either fight now with God or fight later alone. Moreover, the entire scenario is not a new one. Rather, a restating of something God made clear years earlier when he said, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God 
who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priests shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, here, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified of them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So God has been very clear. Once I send you into battle, the battle belongs to me and the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember, you thought I couldn't do that. I did that. The God who brought you out of Egypt, the battle belongs to him. If he says, if God says you're going to be victorious, you're going to be victorious. It's God we're talking about here. And the God who delivered you in the past will deliver you again by his word and his way. And you can stand in the valley analyzing the odds until the cows come home and the paralysis from analysis will do you no good or the paralysis by overanalyzing everything. There's a thing called walking in the spirit where it may not make sense, but you know you've heard the voice of God. If you wait till everything makes sense when you hear from God, you're never gonna move into the extraordinary life and you're gonna miss out on some of life's greatest adventures. Now, from a practical standpoint, fear is also contagious. One coward breeds another coward. God knew that. Fear would spread through the camp like wildfire, and then you would have a bunch of warriors not doing what God requires them to do, thinking and acting in their own power and strength. So out of the 32,000 men, guess how many people raised their hands? 22,000 raised their hands, packed up their tents, and headed for home. 22,000 of the 32,000, God said, tell them to pack up their stuff, pack up their tents, and go home. I try to put myself in Gideon's place and I probably would be thinking, why? I just lost two-thirds of an already ill-equipped and ill-trained army. But there's no time for rebuttal because as the 22,000 men are headed over the hill home, God speaks to Gideon again. He gives him a second test. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained, but the Lord said this to Gideon. There are still too many men. Take down to the water, or them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as would a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. With the fear test completed, Gideon, God says, still has too many men and the second test must be applied. So he moves from four to one odds and then 22,000 men leave. So he's down to 13 to one odds, 10,000 against 135,000. And the Bible says in verse one that Jerubbabel, remember, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. So again, as these 22,000 men are packing up their tents and going home, the Midianite warriors are watching this from above. Now you say, well, why didn't they attack immediately? Now they're significantly, they significantly outnumber the Israelites. And the only answer I know to that is I don't know. But God knew they would not. He's still in charge. He knows what he's doing. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. 
You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.